Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online and also our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also the Hangar in Montana and Purpose Church in Rancho Cucamonga. We are so glad that you're joining us as we study God's Word together. And we've been doing a series entitled Explore God. And today we're going to deal with the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? Philosophers put it in this way, the problem of evil in the world and how to answer, why does God allow evil within the world? That's kind of the philosopher's question, but more down earth and in the trenches where we all live is the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? If he's, if he's great, if he's mighty, and he's also good, why does he allow so much pain and suffering in the world? So let's, uh, uh, let's start with this together. Pain, pain's a part of life. You know, it's, it leaves a sour taste in your mouth. It's, you just have to learn from it. I think some people believe it's a test of your faith, but if you don't have a faith to believe in, it kind of makes you wonder why, why is there suffering in this world? Famine and death, that sort of thing. It was a reason why he took them. Uh, maybe he needed some angels up there to protect, protect, to help him in the fight against the devil. A baby is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Why doesn't he want me to have this? I think that bad things are just the way that you see them. I think God's in everything we do. I don't think God does these things to people. I think he has a way of getting us through it. Why would anybody want to create people who do horrible things to each other each and every day? It doesn't make any sense. People suffer because sometimes they put themselves into it and others just, it just happens to them. When my grandma died, she died of cancer like six years ago. And I remember like when she was like a few days before she passed away, she was like, it couldn't possibly be a God. No one would ever want it. No one would ever want to inflict this pain. Some of the best lessons I've learned in life and the best um, feelings in my heart came from very painful times. I don't think God's sitting there and saying these people are hurting and maybe I should help them or we're, I'm going to pray to this you know, being and he's going to save me. I don't think that happens. Um, I think he's just there, I guess. <laughs> I'm constantly struggling, I suppose I'll be brutally honest, with uh, suicidal ideation and I find it very miserable often, despite the beauty of the world, to be made conscious in this form. Why? Why, why does it pain? Why was why were the little kids shot the other day? I want to know why this happened, but he's showing me that he's here with me, so I suppose the answers will come. It's just I'm going through a journey right now that's painful. Three types of suffering. The first one is what I call self-induced. This is where I go out and get drunk tonight and I crash my car into a tree now, this is still hard to understand because God, why did God allow me to do that? But you still got somebody to blame, and that is you can blame yourself and say, I brought this on myself. Now, the Bible says that despite that fact, we will still shake our fist and blame God. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse 3, a person's own folly leads to their ruin, 
yet their heart rages against the Lord. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. People ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then they're angry at the Lord. And so God warns us about certain things. We do it anyway, and then we're angry at God that he allowed it to take place. Now, there's a little thing I want to add to this uh, first point, self-induced, along with that, what I would call us-induced. Because many times we shake our fist at God and say, why is there so much suffering in the world? Uh, Why do people starve to death? What about world hunger? And the statesman Edmund Burke said this, evil triumphs when good people do nothing. Evil triumphs when good people do nothing. So sometimes it's self-induced. Sometimes it is us-induced. Evils like human trafficking could be dealt with if we all rose up together. Uh, Things like world hunger. And people are so angry at God uh, about world hunger, and yet we could deal with world hunger. They did a research, and it's very interesting. They found that the people that are the angriest at God because of suffering in the world on per capita give the least to charity. The more angry you are with God for the evil in the world, per capita, on general, the less those people give to charity. They even have correlated it with church attendance. And so they found that the more regularly a person attends church, uh, the more they tend to sacrifice to give to charitable causes. And I'm not talking just uh, financial giving. I'm talking things like uh, not just church giving, but I'm talking about all kinds of giving, American Cancer Society, the Red Cross. Uh, They give blood more often. The more regularly a person attends church, the more they donate blood, which has nothing to do with finances. It just has the matter of getting around to doing it and and making the discipline in your life to to get it done. And this is what uh, they have discovered, uh, that there's a correlation that a person that attends church every Sunday, for example, on rainy, stormy Southern California Sunday mornings, they have braved the rain through Stormwatch 2015 and have risked their life as Southern Californians risking your lives to be in church that they give more per capita to charity than those that attend a couple of times a month. And those that attend a couple of times a month, on average, give more than those that attend once a month. And those that attend once a month give more, on average, than those that never uh, go to church. Now, lest we get arrogant about that, they've also discovered this piece of research, that if every person that says they're a follower of Jesus in just America, if every Christ follower just in America uh, obey God's word and tithe their income, okay, 10% of their income, to help people in need and to proclaim the name of Christ, every Christian ministry would be fully funded and world hunger would be eliminated. Just in America. If just everybody in America who named the name of Christ uh, simply read in God's word about tithing, gave 10% of their income to, to, to uh, help those in need and to proclaim the name of Jesus, Every ministry would be fully funded and world hunger would be eliminated. And so, so many times we get angry at God and we have failed to do something about it. He's given us the resources to deal with it and yet we have not done so. So some suffering is self-induced. Some is us-induced together. A second type is other-induced. This is where I get drunk tonight and I don't run my car into a tree, but I run my car into your car. And you get injured. Now, this is still hard to understand. Why did God allow that to happen to you? But you've still got somebody to blame, which is me. This is what we saw earlier this week, uh, recently, as, as in Oregon, a gunman goes into a community college and asks who the Christians are, and then selects those that are followers of Christ and kills nine and wounds nine others. 
Uh, this is other-induced. The evil actions of others bring pain and suffering into our lives. But then the hardest one of all to understand is when there is no explanation. I heard about a couple of families that lived next to each other. True story. And in one household, they had a child die of cancer. And right next door, that family won the lottery. Who can explain that kind of thing? One family has their worst nightmare take place. They lose a child to cancer. Right next door, another family has their greatest dream take place. They win the lottery. Who can explain those kind of things? You know, we believe that actually, chronologically, Job was the first book written. Genesis is the, writes about the beginning of time. And yet the book of Job, we believe, was actually the first book that was written. And isn't it interesting that the first book of the Bible that was written, was written to address this question that we're talking about this morning. Why does God allow pain and suffering? Job, in verses 1 through 19, loses everything. But then in verse 20, it says, At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, the simplistic answer is that given by Stendhal, which is God's only excuse is that he does not exist. This is the simplistic answer. It doesn't get beneath the surface. It doesn't wrestle with what's going on. And yet, even though we consider that answer to be simplistic, we've got to deal with it. You saw that Barna research, that the number one question that your friends that are seeking after God, the number one question of people in your oikos, the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15 in your sphere of influence, the number one question they have is this question that we're dealing with this morning. And so we've got to have an answer for it. James Orr writes, the problem of evil is one of the most crucial protests raised by unbelievers against the fact of God. Elton Trueblood writes, it is a problem which no theist, that is somebody who believes in God, can avoid, and no honest thinker will try to avoid. So we're going to look at three different approaches. One is the atheist, the uh, non-believer in God approach. Uh, The second one is the pantheist, that is pan meaning in everything, God in nature, in us, in, in the world, pantheist. And then the third is what we call the theistic or the believer in God response. First of all, what I'll call atheistic confusion. It's been around for a long time. Epicurus in 270 BC in Athens, Greece said this, either he is not good or else he is not almighty. This is the dilemma. Either God is good, but he's not almighty. That is, he's good, he wants to help us out, but he doesn't have the power to do so. Or he's almighty, but he's not good. That is, he's got the power to help us out, but he's not good and he doesn't want to. We believe as followers of God, as followers of Christ, that he is both good and mighty at the same time. Now, there are possible reasons for evil that people have conjectured down through the year. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of these. But here are a few that have been the most helpful. But we've got to understand, nothing will be as helpful as talking to God face-to-face. The Bible even says that right now we see like in a dirty mirror. Uh, if you've got a, a dirty mirror or a wobbly mirror, the kind that were made in the old, older years when, when you couldn't quite see as clearly as you do right now, uh, like a polished armor, Uh, polished brass. Uh, You couldn't see yourself very clearly. That's the way it is right now. But someday, the Bible says, we will see clearly face to face, and then we'll finally get explanations. But here are a few that people have given. Number one, the existence of Satan, who is often responsible for evil actions. 
That is, we voted in Satan. As a human race, we decided that Satan and us could run the world better than God was doing and look at the results of what we've done. Uh, it, it's kind of like um, when you, after an election, you'll see a bumper sticker that says uh, maybe a year or two after an election takes place, uh, about a year or two afterwards, somebody will have a bumper sticker that says, don't blame me, I voted for the other person, okay? And you've seen those. You'll see them after every election, a couple of years in, don't blame me, I voted for the other guy. Well, we'd like to have a bumper sticker that says, don't blame me, I voted for God. But actually, that's not true. We would have voted for Satan as well. If it had been Glenn and Kimberly in the Garden of Eden rather than Adam and Eve, we would have voted for Satan, or at least Kimberly would have. I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> now, let's see if I have guts to say that when she's sitting on the front row at 11:11. We'll find out if I can do that. But I would have voted too. We ought to have a bumper sticker that says, blame me, I voted for Satan. Now, that'd be a weird bumper sticker. You know how you look at a bumper sticker and then you pull up next to the person and see what kind of person goes with the bumper sticker? You guys ever, am I the only one that does that? Yeah, okay, okay. So you always check up. Well, man, you got that bumper sticker on. They'll all be pulling up next to you uh, to see. But we would have. It, it's our fault. We voted him in. The existence of Satan who is often responsible for evil actions. Number two. Now, before this one, um, I, you know, I've got a I uh, just mentioned my mother-in-law uh, rebuked me after last week's uh, Sunday sermon. She watches live from Syracuse, New York, every Sunday. She watches all three services. My mother-in-law watches all three. And she said, you know what, Glenn, you are lo- using a lot of fancy words for a Pennsylvania farm girl uh, to follow. And so, so I'm going to make sure I explain this uh, really well. But, and this will be a fancy phrase that you can impress your friends with. The eschatological explanation that God's final defeat of evil will demonstrate God's omnipotence. Now, we break it down. It's not that, that hard. Eschaton means the last. It's the study of the last times, the end things. And so basically what we mean by eschatological explanation is that we can't understand until we're at the end. We won't understand until we get to the end. Have you ever had a movie that you were clueless as to what was going on until it was all over, and you're like, oh, now it makes sense? Or a play or a book that you're reading, and you can't quite follow what's going on, and all of a sudden, at the end, it all comes together, and we believe that we are living that play right now, and that we will not be able to understand, but in the end, we will see the eschatological explanation that God's final defeat of evil will demonstrate God's omnipotence. We will see that he is both powerful and good when we get to the end of the book, when we get to the end of the play that we're living through in human history. Next page of your study outline. The idea of discipline for wrongdoing, which provides insight into the meaning of evil. And then number four, the idea that suffering can be a means of revelation to understand God. Uh, The idea that suffering can be a means of revelation to better understand God. And to that I say, bummer but true. Anybody want to repeat that with me out loud together, those three words? Bummer, but true. I wish I grew best on Hawaiian vacations. I really do. And you can grow in the Lord a little bit. You know, you're sitting out on the beach. You got your Bible. You got a Christian book. You can grow a little bit in your Christian walk. But you know, unfortunately, I grow way better when I'm facing a health problem or my wife is or Kimberly or one of our kids is going through a hard time or you get laid off from work or you go through a financial difficulty Man, I wish it wasn't true, but you do grow best 
during the hard times more so than during the good times. I wish I grew best during Hawaiian vacations. I've already embarrassed my mother-in-law once. Let's go ahead and do it a second time. Um, uh, when we were in pastoring in New York, in Homer, New York, near Syracuse, New York, uh, my in-laws, uh, Kimberly's mom and dad, uh, had a home in Hawaii. And so it was like, awesome, because if we could scrape together the money to get there, we could mooch off the in-laws, and we could, you know, we could live at their place with our four kids. We could all descend on them and, and live at their place, and we could eat their food, and we could drive their car, and we basically had a free Hawaiian vacation if we could just get the ticket to go there. Unfortunately, the ticket, because Syracuse is a small market airlines-wise, it was a killer ticket to get from Syracuse to Hawaii. It was just brutal, so we could only save up and do it once in a while. But then we moved to Los Angeles. I was so excited because I thought, oh man, you can get great deals between LA and Hawaii. This is going to be awesome. And then those selfish people sold their home in Hawaii right about the same time. I said, you guys are so self-centered. You're not, think, you're not thinking not think of us, but it's probably okay because we don't grow best during Hawaiian vacations. We grow best during those hard times. Here's the atheist argument. Number one, there's evil in the world. Number two, evil is incompatible with God. Therefore, number three, God does not exist. Now, a little bit of a sidebar here, just for a moment. And I don't mean this to be, I, I said this last um, time we studied this, that, uh, you know, I don't want this to be an us versus them. This needs to be, you know, we don't want to win the debate. We want to win people, okay? So I'm not giving you this so you can win a debate, but so you can win people, so you can be encouraged, and so you can have loving, humble, gently given, gracious answers for the questions that, that people have. Uh, and we want to, like I said last Sunday, we, we want to have hearts of compassion because it is a terrifying thing. All of us are going to die. And death is scary enough with Christ. Can you imagine facing death not believing there's a God? and not having Christ in your heart. I, I can't imagine. So we have to have hearts of compassion. But let me just say this. One thing I've always found interesting about atheists is how, is how angry they are at God. Uh, some of the angriest people I know are atheists. And I'm like, what are they so angry about something that doesn't exist? I mean, people believe a lot of crazy stuff today. There are people that believe that aliens have taken over the bodies of our world leaders and are running the world. Uh, there are people that believe in certain conspiracy theories. There are people that believe the Chicago Cubs can win the World Series. I mean, just crazy. This could be your year, Cubs fans. This, this is a good year. If it's going to happen, it could be this year. But, you know, who gets angry about that stuff? I mean, if people believed in unicorns, and they had a unicorn society where they got together and talked about unicorns, I would feel kind of sad for them. I wouldn't want to go myself, but I wouldn't get angry about it if they want to sing songs about unicorns and study passages about unicorns. That would not bother me in the least. And yet, oh my goodness, you try to have the National Day of Prayer and people go crazy. I mean, in America, every year, the atheists just go nuts. They want to get every vestige of God out of every nook and cranny in American society. And, and you think about it with the National Day of Prayer. If you don't believe in God, what's the harm in a few people getting together and chanting for a while for the goodwill of America? I mean, it's not that dangerous of an idea. And yet people go crazy. People get so angry. And I'll tell you why I believe they do. Because deep down in our hearts, everybody knows there's a God. You know there's a God in your heart. Now, here's the problem. You don't want to face what it means to live following after that God. 
You don't want to have that God have an opinion on your life or how you treat other people or how you live your life. And so that's where the anger comes from is because deep down we know there's a God, but we want to explain him away so we don't have to answer to him. And so the theistic response goes like this. God is omnipotent. That is, he's all-powerful. He's benevolent. That is, he's good. Since God is not yet finished with the world, evil will remain until God eliminates it. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, if I were to say those words, you'd have a right to get angry with me because I, as I look across, I know many of you have suffered a great deal and a, a lot more than I have suffered. I, I know that. Boy, when we have our prayer times for our church family uh, as a staff, my heart just breaks at some of the hard hard things that, that, that people are going through. And it just, it just breaks my heart. And so you, you, many of you have suffered a great deal. So if I were to say this, you'd have a right to be resentful. But I didn't say it. Paul said it. And you can make a case that the apostle Paul suffered about as much as anybody has suffered in all of human history. He also got to visit heaven for a few minutes. And he's in this perfect position because he's seen the worst that this life has to offer and the best that heaven has to offer. And here's the good news of what he tells us in the comparison. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Is that good news or what? That's fantastic news. It reminds me of Usain Bolt, the Jamaican sprinter. His nickname is Lightning Bolt. And all the doors of this world opened to him. Wealth, fame, opportunity, it all opened because Usain Bolt is able to run 100 meters farther than a football field in about nine and a half seconds. He's able to run 200 meters, way more than the length of two football fields, put end on end in about 19 seconds. This guy's really fast, okay? But, he, but what if we were to say, oh, poor Usain you must have suffered so much during those nine and a half seconds. It must have hurt, you know, that final burst to the, to the finish line. That, there must have been pain involved in that. And he was said, that's ridiculous. My light and momentary nine and a half seconds of trouble achieved for me all kinds of glory and financial gain and power and opportunity. Are you kidding me? It's foolish to compare that light and momentary trouble to all the good that's come from that. And Paul would say the same thing. He would say, this life we're in right now is the equivalent of a nine and a half second, 100 meter race. It's over in a moment. And the trouble that we experience during it is light and momentary. And it is achieving for us when we hit the finish line, we are into eternity. It's achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul said in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let's watch this together. The suffering that comes from nature or earthquakes or hurricanes or things like that, I, I find harder to explain. And uh, I guess you've got to live with the mystery of it. Um, I think the Christian answer is the best one. Where when you go out east into the eastern religions, it doesn't make any sense of suffering at all. Uh, it's kind of like suck it up. It doesn't make any, it doesn't attempt to try and make sense of it or derive meaning. So the Buddhist answer, for instance, and I have great respect for Buddhism, the Buddhist answer says it's not real. Um, 
suffering has no reality. Well, you know, I, I think you tell that to a suffering person and I don't think it makes sense to them. The Christian answer actually doesn't answer everything, um, particularly when you're suffering, um, but it is the best one around, uh, without a doubt. About five years ago, I was pregnant, and I heard the words that no mother ever wants to hear, your child is not going to live. Um, on April 7th, 2008, I delivered a little girl who was alive when she was born. Her name was Audrey Caroline, and she lived for two and a half hours. We loved her a lifetime's worth, but a short amount of time. Watched her get her first bath, and little haircut but later that night when everyone was gone and it was just my husband and I alone with her as time went on we knew that we were gonna have to call a nurse to come in and take her I had to hand my daughter to someone and watch her be taken away from me knowing that I wouldn't see her again this side of heaven and as I lay in that hospital bed and everything in me wanted to just bang on all the buttons and tell them to bring her back. I really called out to God in a way I never had before, and I just said, I can't do this, and I need you to just be here right now. I just need you to hold me. He did. He did. I will tell you that in that moment, I saw it. Um, a side of God that I've never experienced and have never forgotten since then. Just his faithfulness to one girl in a hospital room who was devastated. And I just really felt that he was there. Sorry. When I talk to people about the stuff they've gone through, I to be honest, the, for me, the best answer and the, the most appropriate response as, as a Christian, as a believer, is to cry too. To hold the hand and to weep too. And then to introduce them to someone who helps pull you out of a pit. And not in some weird, messed up, quick fix kind of a way. I get really annoyed <laughs> when we Christians propose that as an answer, as like the quick in a box fix that changes everything. Um, but... There's a, there's a phrase, it's in one of the books of the Bible, which talks about, I, uh, and it's this, it says, I know my Redeemer lives. And, um, and that part of the Bible has always won me because it talks about this person who buys back all that's been lost um, through your own helplessness, um, through violence, through your own foolishness. And um, that's who I met. <laughs> Someone who, who helped me over, over years and blood, sweat and tears um, bring back that what was lost. We have seen God use our son's sickness um, in amazing ways, and people have found faith in Jesus through his life. And I guess maybe God does uh, use some people and their disabilities and their struggles to help other people to find God. You know, I, I do think like if there really is a heaven and if what is said about heaven from the words of Jesus is true and that there, my son will never be sick again and someday I'll see him as this perfect body in this perfect form 
And then Ryan looks at his life, and we all see the amount of people that have been influenced by his life. Am I going to argue with what God did? Probably not. I'll probably be thankful that he allowed our family, um, I guess, to, to struggle through. Um, and yet, why does he just help other people? I don't know, but I'm glad he does. I'm glad he just helps. I'm glad that no matter what we see, apparently God has some plan for that. We see that God actually comes to the planet. He actually lives among us so that he understands our suffering, our hurt, our pain. He understands it all. Then Jesus dies on the cross. And in the mystery of faith, all the junk of the world, all the junk that's in our hearts, all the junk that's in our relationships, all of that junk dies with him. So in the Christian worldview, God doesn't leave our world in the state that it is, but actually is seeking to heal it and bring us back. We feel as though we're in this battle. And um, really what we need in the midst of that battle is a hero to step in for us. The hero obviously is, is God. I believe that God considers those who struggle with him to be heroes also. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say that those of his children who struggle against all of these terrible things that we see in the world um, are cheered on by the population of heaven. And um, if they should die in their struggle, I believe they get a hero's welcome when they meet him. Home stretch. Next one we'll call pantheistic illusion. Uh, pantheism is the Eastern religions like Hinduism, Buddhism. It takes the form in the United States of the teachings of uh, Mary Baker Eddy, what we call Christian science, which some people have said is neither Christian nor science. She writes, evil is but an illusion and it has no real basis. Evil is a false belief. Norman Geisler writes, accepting the illusionist position demands that one admit that all of life as he experiences it is deceiving him. An Eastern poet in an honest moment wrote, though evil is an illusion, yet when I sit on a pin and it punctures my skin, I dislike what I fancy I feel. Norman Geisler writes, those who believe that evil in the world are illusions do not actually function as if this were so. They may maintain that all is an illusion, but if one were to push them in front of an oncoming bus, they would quickly warm up to that whole reality idea. So here's the theistic solution. William Dearness writes, It is a Christian conviction that evil is permitted by a sovereign God in some way that is ultimately compatible with his goodness. C.S. Lewis writes, Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And then there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. Evil is a parasite, not an original thing. God did not create evil. There were no children with leukemia in the Garden of Eden. And there will be no children with leukemia in heaven someday. Steve Kumar writes, God created human beings with the potential and the capacity to choose good or evil. He created the possibility of evil, but not its reality. Why even create the possibility of evil? John W. Montgomery writes, to create only those who must choose good 
is to create automata, from which we got our word automaton or robot. That is, God had a choice between creating children or robots, and he chose children. Now, as parents, we choose children, but there are certain days when we would prefer to have robots. Anybody be there? You could program them not to have a temper tantrum in the grocery store just before you went in, and it would all work out great. So there are days when we'd like to have robots, but we really realize we don't want that. We don't want somebody programmed to love us, programmed to obey us. We want somebody with free will. We want somebody with choice. We want children, not robots. Now, when the evil does happen, God didn't create the evil, but he can still use the evil that we bring on ourselves. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. G.K. Chesterton, and don't you love that hairstyle? I'm telling you, when I get to heaven, I'm asking for that. That thing is, that thing is awesome. According to Christianity, in making it the world, he set it free. God had written not so much a poem, but rather a play. A play he had planned as perfect, but which had necessarily been left to human actors and stage managers who have since made a great mess of it. Now here's where Christianity takes it a step further than than mere theism. That is, we believe that God actually entered the mess that we had made. Emmanuel, God with us. Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, these next four quotes, um, you can read them on your own, and I encourage you to do so um, uh, later on, or maybe when we're sharing the Lord's Supper together to, to, to read those together. But I do want to just read the last one here by Dorothy Sayers because I love it. He did not stop the crucifixion. He rose from the dead. And I wish I could say that he will stop your crucifixion. I wish I could say that he will stop that bout of chemotherapy, that he will stop that disappointment with one of your children, that he will stop that layoff at work, that he will stop that bankruptcy. I wish I could say that he will stop your crucifixion. But he did not stop his own crucifixion, but here's what he did. He rose from the dead. And he will rise from the dead in your situation. I love the verse in the Bible that says, Um, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And you may weep during your night of whatever it is that you're going through, but I promise you, in Christ, there will be joy in the morning. Job writes, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. It's so appropriate that we share the Lord's Supper together right now.
uh, because the, really this is, this is what it's all about. The, one of the quotes I skipped was by E.J. Carnell. The cross of Christ is God's final answer to the problem of evil because the problem of evil is in the cross itself. So everybody's welcome here to share the Lord's Supper. Uh, you just need to know that you've received Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You say, Glenn, I don't know if I've done that or if I'd like to do it today. How would I go about doing it? On the next page of your program in the upper left-hand corner, uh, you will see um, uh, an outline of what the Bible says, three steps that it says we need to do, and then a little suggested prayer there. And if you've ever prayed that prayer in the past or if you'd like to pray it today, uh, you are very welcome to show outwardly a celebration and a remembrance of his death, the bread representing his body crushed for you on the cross, the cup representing his blood shed for us on, on the cross. And so if you pray that prayer, this could be your day, this could be your moment to, uh, to pray that prayer, open your heart to Christ. He wants to come into the mess of our lives and give us victory, resurrection in the midst of the crucifixion that we're going through. And you can invite him into your heart right here, right now, and then show that outwardly by sharing the Lord's Supper with us. So let's take just a moment and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.